CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Hour number two of your Ben Jarofsky show for Tuesday, January 21st. Got it right this time, Brianna. It's just moments away. But before we get into that, we need to thank the following unions again for jumping on board and sponsoring our program. The International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9. They sponsor the show, as well as the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150, and the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, not Aerosmith, Local 126 and District 8. A giant thank you to those unions for jumping on board and sponsoring this program. And, of course, today's Ben Jarofsky show is brought to you by our good friends, at the Chicago Federation of Labor. Troy, you looking for something? Headphones. Headphones? Oh, I'll take care of that. Oh, okay. The Ben Jarofsky Show, hour number two, starts right now. It is Tuesday, January 21st, and live from the Chicago Sun-Times Chicago Reader Studio on Racine Avenue... This is the Ben Jarofsky Show. In this hour of the program, one man and one man only. It's the long-awaited return of president of the Chicago Principals Association, Mr. Troy LaRavier. And now your host, one man, and believe me when I say one man only. Chicago Reader columnist Ben Jarofsky. Troy LaRavier is in the studio. Uh, they got a ton of questions. I just wrote them down. Uh, then I'm going to ask, ask Troy, including, I'm going to start off with a Martin Luther King Day question. Uh, everybody just was, wrote them down, huh? Yeah, I just wrote them down. <laughs> well, they just were, now. They were in my head. They were in my head, and I just wrote them down. I was just right, watching Joe Rogan interview Bill Maher the other day. People. Yeah, uh, and by the way, that that was not one of the best. I'm just throwing that no, out there. No, no, he was very, uh, very negative. Yeah, it's just. It was just not Rogan in a show at its best. But anyway, uh, Maher was really impressed that Joe Rogan didn't write down any questions. He just it was, It's a two-hour interview, Troy. It's twice as long as we're going to do today. And uh, Joe Rogan, who's you know one of the most popular podcasters in America, did not have one question written down. He just let it go. So I'm of the Rogan school. But I do this mostly because so I won't forget. And then, uh, you know, things I want to uh, pick Troy's brain about. And then, uh, of course, one thing leads to another, and I get through half the list. Anyway, before we bring Troy on, you got an update for us? Absolutely, I do. And boy, our host is one hell of a political nerd. And the f- I'll prove it right now that Bindrowski is a political uh, uh, nerd. Well, that's when I hear these two words, I just go, I don't know. Slush fund. Oh, is this a story about tiffs? Oh, yes, sir. Four years ago, the city council... Oh, the following comes from the Chicago Sun-Times and the one and only Fran the Woman Spielman. Four years ago, the city council signed off on Rahm Emanuel's plan to generate a pot of money to rebuild struggling neighborhoods... Oh, neighborhood opportunity at, fund. ...at the expense of downtown developers. Despite concerns it would create a mayoral, quote, slush fund... Ben, calm down. Uh, Akin to a tax increment financing, Alderman agreed to let developers in a, in a broader downtown area build bigger and taller projects so as long as they agree to share the wealth with long-ignored south and west side neighborhoods. Now Mayor Lightfoot is making Emanuel's 
Robin Hood program her own with reforms tailor-made to fuel her $250 million plan to bring, quote, transformative change to 10 South and West Side neighborhoods. All right. I, this actually happens to be the subject of a column I just wrote yesterday, which uh, will run tomorrow. Uh, the Neighborhood Opportunity Fund. Ah, my beloved city of Chicago. How do I explain uh, this, Troy? This, the idea for writing a column on this subject came when I heard Lori Lightfoot last week talking at the city council uh, in, a, in a remarks I, uh, for the most part, really agreed with. She was um, criticizing aldermen for their silliness uh, and some of the things they were saying and their nastiness and uh, some, uh, what they were saying regarding set-asides uh, for businesses owned by gays, uh, lesbians, etc., and uh, in the middle of that, she says, uh, we can cut, we can slice the pie here in Chicago for everyone. And I just, when that metaphor of pie slicing is something I always talk about, how we divvy the pie. Right. And I have dedicated so many years of writing stories about how unfairly we divvy the pie. So the notion that Chicago could suddenly overnight fairly divvy a pie or slice the pie is preposterous. And case point, Number one of the list is the Neighborhood Opportunity Fund, which is where they slap a fee uh, on a developer who gets a zoning approval. You, if you had been elected mayor, you would be dealing with this. Uh, and then that money gets channeled into a fund which is used to finance entrepreneurs on the uh, south and west sides. Mm -hmm. Mayor Rahm worked, him, work, uh, worked himself out ex with exhaustion, patting himself on the back every time he had a press conference once a year or so where they would dole out yeah, uh, these awards, okay? And in reality, so while they're doling out these awards, meanwhile, they're funneling $1.3 billion to Lincoln Yard. So again, Neighborhood Opportunity Fund uh, is predicated on the notion that Chicagoans are not very bright and they'll be really impressed and wow by a press conference in which you pat yourself on the back for mm -hmm. giving like $47 million uh, over the course of several years to the South and West Side while you're giving $1.3 billion. Like Chicagoans don't know the difference between $1.3 billion and $47 million. That is what the Neighborhood Opportunity Fund is dedicated to. The other thing you have to think about is sort of the scope of where that 47 million goes and the scope of where that 1 billion or 1.7 billion goes. It was actually, I, this program was actually a talking point of mine when I was campaigning because at the time when I was still in, 11 million had been spent that year in the Neighborhood Opportunity Fund, 11 million. For the entire South yeah. and West Side. That's Eleven million dollars. That's the point you have to have that for the entire South yeah. and West Side. Yeah. Eleven million dollars, yeah. and I can go over here to Wintrust Arena and see an amount invested in that one arena that quadruples that eleven million dollars uh, in terms of the public money that was yes, put in. Public it. money, correct. In terms of the the public money that was put in it. You put four to five times more public money into one project <laughs> in one on one block yeah. than you did the entire south and west sides of Chicago. Um, that's how I help people to, to see just how um, inadequate the uh, Neighborhood Opportunity Fund is in relationship to one other funds that pad the pockets of developers and two, the need 
on the south and west sides. Yeah, no, and it's, uh, again, uh, get your thoughts on this. It's really a very cynical thing. The notion that uh, you can hold a press conference to pat yourself on the back uh, for giving, uh, doling out $47 million to the entire west, uh, west and south sides while ignoring the fact that you got $1.3 billion going to this little corner of the north side. Mm-hmm. And we're not, yeah, you're right. You're, the wind trust at the Paul Basketball Arena, the Marriott Hotel, the money, the TIF money that went to Navy Pier, they're all of it dwarfs the $47 uh, million. Uh, so the notion that you could pat yourself on the back by uh, doing something that just uh, sort of uh, proves the point that the pie is not being sliced up fairly while pretending as though you are slicing up the pie fairly right. uh, suggests that you really think the public is stupid because they can't tell the difference between $47 million and one Point three billion, and that you have no real commitment to addressing the actual need, because forty-seven million dollars is not going to do on the south and west sides what is needed on the south and west sides. You have to have someone in there with a vision of investing billions of dollars mm-hmm. in those neighborhoods, and that's not what we have. It's not what we had before, and it's not what we have now. Well, I'm going to give a shout out. I I uh, did end my this column uh, with a little uh, hope. Uh, Maurice Cox, who was on uh, France Bill and show last week, he's a new planning commissioner. And when when asked about uh, funneling out an untold tens of millions of dollars for some uh, in TIF monies for projects uh, that would uh, build a barrier over the uh, a top on the expressway so you can put a high rise, said that money would be better spent on uh, in, in black communities in the Southwest. So there's, I've never heard a planning commissioner talk mm-hmm. that way, uh, Troy, so I'm trying to be hopeful. I was very impressed that he said that. I, you know, that just goes to show you how low the bar is in the city of Chicago, but I was impressed because I've never heard a planning commissioner talk in that way. City, right. yeah, in this city, they usually like can't wait to give the money. Is that the one that came from Detroit? That is correct. Uh, he's from Detroit. Uh, all right. Uh, you got any more updates, uh, D? Uh, February 4th, first Tuesday, 1354, West Wabonzia. Carlos Ramirez Rosa versus Brandon Johnson. Showdown. The debate of the century. <laughs> Yeah, Elizabeth Warren versus uh, Bernie Sanders. I would get uh, Troy's thoughts on all that in a little while. But I want to start uh, Martin Luther King Day yesterday. Uh, That's the one day a year where everybody gets together, holds hands, and say how much uh, they love each other. And then as soon as the day's over, they go back to uh, fighting each other. Um, Talk about cynical acts. Uh, Today's article, I had to share this with you, uh, Troy. Pro-gun rally of thousands in Virginia ends peacefully. I don't know if you saw this. Uh, this is the part that I was reading the story about tens of thousands of gun right activists from around the country rally peacefully on Martin Luther King Day. So gun rights, out. let's just think about that for a moment. Okay. Um, Martin Luther King, of course, for our younger uh, listeners, was uh, killed uh, in 1968, assassinated, shot uh, by a sniper. Uh, and uh, so there's a gun rights rally on Martin Luther King Day and they're shouting USA and they're heavily armed. Uh, There was one gentleman who was particularly uh, popular. He was a truck driver for Richmond uh, who was carrying an AR-15 rifle just outside of Capitol Square. He said, I love this. This is like the Super Bowl for the Second Amendment. Uh, He, and I'm reading from this article from the Associated Press, he was one of the few African-American rally goers in a crowd that was overwhelmingly white and male and was frequently stopped and asked to pose for pictures because he's wearing his, quote, Black Guns Matter sweatshirts. Wow. 
Uh, any thoughts on that one? That little riff. Black Guns Matter sweatshirt, very popular with the crowd. Everybody wants to take their picture with them. I got nothing, man. I'm speechless. You, you've accomplished it. No <laughs> one has ever made me speechless before. You have made me. I'm speechless, man. I was surprised. What you know? If what would the reaction been if you've been wearing a Black Lives Matter? Uh, I raised this. I mean, it's interesting that you know the NRA itself um, is pretty quiet when the gun rights of black citizens are violated. You know, like Philando Castile. You know, he was legally carrying his gun and was killed as a result of it. And the NRA didn't say a thing. Gun rights activists didn't say a thing. Not one peep out of any of them when it was a black person um, being killed uh, by having his gun rights, his rights to carry an arms violated. Um, so that's an interesting thing to juxtapose against those same people who were silent on Philando Castile coming to ask this black man to pose with him, you know, and I think it was, it was more for his shirt than it was for his gun rights. I think it, it, it was, I think people probably posed with that man more because of what his shirt implied about black lives than what it said about black people's rights to carry guns. If I'm making any sense, I think I think if he I think if he said I think if he had a shirt that said um, that explicitly said something about um, sort of like black people um, have gun rights, too. Right. Like something like that. No one would have asked for that. It was because it said black guns matter as opposed to black lives. That's why people want they weren't. They didn't give a damn about his right to carry an arm. They liked the fact that it seemed to be a, sh a, a message against Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, no, absolutely. He was trivializing uh, and mocking uh, the, the rallying cry uh, that has you've been hearing for the last, what, five years? Uh, ever since Ferguson, uh, Black Lives Matter. So he's mocking that by wearing a shirt that says black guns matter. I don't know if he was mocking it intentionally. It certainly does mock it. I know the people who embraced it and wanted to pose with it were certainly mocking it. Um, you know, as far as he's concerned, maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. But I'm fairly certain that the people who stopped to ask for a, a photograph were mocking Black Lives Matter. Also uh, at this uh, pro-gun rally, they uh, had a, uh, a poster of the um, the face of Virginia's Governor Northam uh, opposed on the uh, head of Adolf Hitler. So, um, happy Martin Luther King Day in Virginia. All right, um, let's go on to uh, Bernie and Elizabeth. You sent me an article uh, yes. that I only had a chance to read the opening couple paragraphs uh, but uh, talk about it. Bernie and Elizabeth, we were talking a lot about this all day. Uh, talk about what the gist of the article is and the argument they made. Well, it's from Jacobin, uh, Jacobin Magazine. And they analyze how both Bernie and Elizabeth Warren do 
with Trump voters in their own states. Because at in the final analysis, we must beat Trump. Right? That's we must beat him. Um we cannot hope and rely on the hope that Ruth Gator Ginsburg Bader Ginsburg is going to be healthy enough to serve another four another four years on the Supreme Court, let alone live another four years. Uh, Trump has been packing the federal courts, and we just cannot let him have another four years continuing to put unqualified ultra conservatives on our courts and certainly not giving them an opportunity mm -hmm. to put someone else on the Supreme Court. That said, he must be beat. That said, we must pick the candidate who has the best chance of beating him. That said, that candidate must do one thing. Now, there's several things, but the most important thing that candidate must do is take those Obama voters who went Trump and bring them back into the Democratic fold. Who can take those and, and also take some of those Trump voters and bring them over? Some of them. But mostly those Obama voters that went Trump, you have to bring them back. You win. And so they analyzed how Elizabeth Warren did in the 2018 midterms when she ran for her Senate seat again and how Bernie did in the 2018 midterms when he ran for his seat again with those Trump voters in their own state. Bernie was something like plus 14 with those voters. Elizabeth Warren was something like negative, I think it was negative seven. So she can't even flip the Trump voters in her own state. How is she supposed to do it in Michigan, in Wisconsin, in Ohio, in Florida? She can't even do it in her own home state of Massachusetts. And we want to consider putting this up against Trump. Absolutely not. Absolutely. Like, nothing against Warren. You have shown that in your own state, though, that you are net, not the best qualified person strategically mm -hmm. to return the White House to the Democratic Party. Who is? Who has the best record with Trump voters in their own state? It's Bernie. He is the one who has converted more. Every year, every time he's in an election, he consistently outperforms Democrats. Whoever the Democrat running is, if the Democrat gets 55% of the vote, Bernie gets 65. That means that 10% voted for the Republican for the, for the presidency, but voted for Bernie as their senator. He has consistently shown an ability to bring the conservatives over and vote for him. And Warren has not done it in Massachusetts. Now, what do you think it is about Bernie Sanders that does that? I th it's his plain spokenness. It's his sort of populist appeal. I mean, there are people who don't necessarily, um, um, you know, they're not socialists. They're not liberals. They're just like a guy who seems like they're on their side. Trump was able to fake that. Like, Bernie does a much better job giving that because it's real and you can feel that it's real. Um, with not, you know, This is not all voters, but with that segment that you need to flip, right, I think they're highly influenced by sort of the personality, the persona, the demeanor, the messaging, 
whether or not this seems like a guy who's on my side who's going to fight for me mm-hmm. or a person who's on my side. And a lot of times it's a guy because we live in a sexist world, which, which we can get back to that Bernie Warren thing mm-hmm. later on. Um, and Bernie seems to convince and he, when he talks, you, you, you know political speak and you know someone who is talking outside of the mainstream. Trump talks outside of the mainstream. Bernie talks outside of the mainstream political talking. They both do that. And so in the 2016 election, you had Hillary, whose, whose conversations was well within the, the political mainstream. Trump's conversation was way outside of it. And so he seemed like something different. Bernie also has a, a conversation talking points that are way outside of the political mainstream, that talk about the fact that this is a rigged economy, that the people who rigged that economy then rigged the political system with the money they get from the rigged economy. You know, you know that excites people. Uh, it gives people the sense that yeah, this guy's different. And so they both do that. And I think given the choice of those two, that people are going to side with Bernie. There's certainly those Trump voters, those Obama voters who went Trump, Elizabeth Warren's conversation is not going to bring them back. All right. Now, let's talk about uh, Bernie's appeal to black voters. Uh, This is something that I've talked. I don't know if I've ever talked about with you on the show. I talk about it a lot on the show. Uh, Joe Biden is doing much better than Bernie uh, among black voters in polls. I'm not sure I completely believe the polls because I have my own issues about uh, the inability of pollsters uh, to adequately decipher what black voters were up to, but let's just stick with the polls. He's doing much better, Biden is, than Bernie. Uh, this is four years later after Bernie's already run. It, Bernie seems to have uh, an inability to really win over black voters at a large number, even if the issues he's addressing uh, would be those that uh, would benefit many black voters. So this is something that I scratch my head about all the time. What's your thoughts on this? I have several. Um, Number one, I remember um, when Obama was running and Clinton, while Obama was in the race, was had an edge in those early states in the black vote. And it wasn't until people got to hear Obama when he started getting a lot of press coverage that that began to flip. With Bernie... When black voters hear him, they tend to agree with him and side with him. The press seems to have been, they seem to be intentionally ignoring Bernie, not giving him a lot of time. Because we have to remember that the average voter does not pay attention like you and I do. And so whomever the press feeds to the average voter, that's who the average voter hears and gets a chance to understand. I don't think the average black voter has gotten a chance to really hear Bernie because those that I know of and that I've seen who hear him like what he has to say. I think we give Bernie the Democratic nomination. You can't ignore him at that point. <laughs> Bernie gets the nomination. He cannot be ignored. Yeah. He has to. There's no one else to cover. You cover him and you cover Trump. Yeah. And I think that his message will certainly resonate um, with not just black voters, but voters voters of um, 
you know, for all uh, of all kinds. Well, I, I just laughing because that line is so true. You won't be able to ignore them. Uh, now they will try to trivialize them and they'll try to marginalize them. Uh, they'll try to distort his message because things that Bernie are calling for are things that a lot of powerful people in this country are against redistribution, mm-hmm. uh, raising taxes on the wealthy so we can have health care for all. The Republicans might. See, what we have to remember now is that right now the Democrats are trying to marginalize them also. Yes, that is correct. Like the, the, the outlets that a typical Democratic voter or black voter might tune into are also trying to ignore him. Mm-hmm. We can always count on the Republicans doing that. But once he gets the nomination, the Democrat, all of the pro-Democratic outlets who are trying to get anybody but Bernie are going to have to cover Bernie and they can't. Unless they want Trump in, like they have to get in line, they have to give them fair coverage. They again, unless unless they want sort of party suicide and just hand the thing over to the Republicans again, you have to swallow the fact that Bernie is your nominee, <laughs> and you have to cover him in the best light possible. So if he gets the nomination, all of that is going to change from the more democratic-leaning outlets. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the uh, homework assignments I gave you, uh, I sent you an article about Michael Bloomberg and his stop-and-frisk uh, policies, and uh, it was in the New York Times. Interesting article. Michael Bloomberg, of course, is the uh, former mayor of city of uh, New York, uh, multi, a billionaire. The guy is really rich, Troy. Uh, and uh, he has pledged to spend a billion dollars at least uh, in this next campaign uh, and he says he'll spend it even if it's uh, he doesn't get the nomination. Elizabeth Warren and Bernie get the nomination. Doesn't agree with them. He would still spend it on their behalf. That's real money. Uh, as you know, you you thought about running for mayor of city of Chicago and you had to step back to a large degree because you had no money. Right. Uh, money talks. So that's real money. And uh, and yet it, he's having a difficult time. Uh, the, uh, his apology may not sway crucial black voters. Hard line and stop and frisk haunts Bloomberg. I, I find this fascinating on many levels, the story. Uh, mayor Bloomberg was a big proponent of stop and frisk when he was the mayor of New York City, and they were stopping and frisking a lot of black people. Uh, the world has changed dramatically in just 10 years, because that was about 10 years ago. Wasn't it? Yeah, 10 years ago. Uh, well, the math, I'm not that great at math, but it was about 10 years ago uh, that stop and frisk. Everybody seemed like, except for a few, you know, malcontents like you or me, uh, Maya maybe, uh, there weren't a lot of people objecting to stop and frisk, at least elected officials. Now Bloomberg's running around apologizing for it. I think that shows a lot about how this country has moved to the left, at least the Democratic Party mm-hmm. uh, has moved to the left. Do you think it's insurmountable for him? Uh, is it enough to apologize? I think what is insurmountable for Michael Bloomberg is Michael Bloomberg. Like, I don't think he can get over just being him. Like He just doesn't motivate people. <laughs> he doesn't make me want to get out and vote. He doesn't Change my mind when I hear him talk. Um, he just doesn't excite anyone, uh, unless you're from New York, maybe. And I would imagine half the New Yorkers aren't excited about him. Uh, but given um, that aspect of what's insurmountable, I also think that you know I don't know if if the stop and frisk 
piece is insurmountable in terms of the average person's opinion of Michael Bloomberg. I know it's insurmountable for me. Like, if I liked him, if he was an interesting person, Mm -hmm. if he did have some kind of charisma, that would be my deal breaker. No. Uh, But I don't know if the average voter is sort of hard line uh, on that the way I am or some other folks might be. Well, I, I, I do know that the average voter was supporting it back in. The voters are not perfect. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it was the popular view of police tactics back in the O's that people, it was Democrats were supporting it, trying to show that they yeah. were tough and they were getting reelected by yep. Democratic voters. I remember. Um, I mean, he's subjected. And the reason it's insurmountable for me is, my God, man, as someone who grew up um, having to suffer through many of the insults and humiliations of being targeted by law enforcement unjustly, and then you create a policy to subject millions of people to that kind of um, humiliating, mm-hmm. targeting activity um, day in and day out, every day in a city of what, I don't know, how I many millions of people in New York now? It was 10, 12 million. Um, I mean, usually always say eight when we were kids, eight, but I yeah. would imagine that it's a lot more than that by now. Well, Chicago know. fell. We used to go eight in New York, three in Chicago. Right. <laughs> Uh, and uh, uh, Chicago's uh, fallen significantly. So uh, let's subject, um, you know, whatever the percentage of the black population of that eight million is to that kind of daily harassment, targeting, unjust, humiliating treatment. Um, it's like you don't get it, man. You just don't get it. And I don't think he. I still don't think he gets it because he's never talked about. He's apologized, but he's never talked about the human impact of that policy, man. You are people over and humiliating them every single day. Um, so, no, that's a deal breaker for me. But I don't think the average person looks at it that way, unfortunately. Uh, I uh, have to agree with you on that one. And I think uh, Michael Boomer will uh, have a big role uh, before all is said and done. Cause like I said, $1 billion uh, is serious change. And uh, so I've like he's already he's got a commercial coming out on the Super Bowl. Uh, And and then Trump, when he heard that, came back with his commercial or maybe it was the other way around. I'm looking at Rob Markwick, my next guest. He can't remember either. But I think it was uh, Bloomberg was the one who came out with the commercial first. Uh, Yeah, He's our uh, bonus guest (laughs) after this show. But what the hell? Sit down, Markwick. Uh, And the state senator, Rob Markwick. I was uh, almost calling him state rep. Uh, but uh, I remember he was promoted of sorts. Uh, anyway, um, uh, Bloomberg, a billion dollars is going to kick in the race. What impact, uh, Rob, do you think Bloomberg's going to have on this Democratic race? It's such a wild card, isn't it? I mean, it's pretty clear that, you know, he draws off moderate centrist Democrats. I assume, you know, it would you'd assume that he would hurt, potentially he would hurt Biden the most. <laughs> Right, because he's not gonna. I, I can't imagine Bernie supporters are gonna say, "Oh, Bloomberg, let's go for him." Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, that that's where I think. I mean, Biden's, you know, in a strong position, but he it could be just enough to pull him out. Mm-hmm. Well, I the, the the positive of it is uh, if he's gonna kick in a billion dollars in this campaign. Uh, that's a lot of ads. It'll be anti-Trump ads. I do not believe Michael Bloomberg, I'm with Troy, in a million years will be the Democratic nominee. I just don't see that happening. Uh, and 
he's so late in the game anyway. Yeah. But a uh, billion dollars, Troy LaRavier, <laughs> is some serious money, and that's just going to be attacking Trump. Uh, he seems to have a personal grudge against Donald Trump. I don't blame him for having a personal grudge against Donald Trump. And Ben, we were talking about it yesterday. We, we were starting to compare, you know, Pritzker. He's a billionaire. He got a billion dollars. But Pritzker put the legwork in, right? Yeah, that was the difference that I was uh, drawing when I was talking to Dennis about this. Uh, J.B. Pritzker went around the entire state of Illinois, built his alliances, uh, his got people to support him uh, on the local level, and that enabled him to sustain some rocky moments in that campaign. Like, mm-hmm. for instance, I don't know if this is ancient history, Troy Laravier. I remember. You remember when the ads broke? Uh, when the when the Tribune got a hold of tapes where Pritzker and Blagojevich were making fun of uh, various black elected officials, yeah. and uh, and here was the Democratic, and he he had already brought over he already won the support of many black elected officials they have press conferences mm-hmm. for him we forgive him this that and the other. Right. he had put in his time right. uh and built uh, in Pritzker's defense he wasn't making fun Bogoyevich was saying more the negative stuff and Prisca was kind of going seemed to be going along with that's it. exactly that's my correct memory. that yeah. is that's correct he was like <laughs> yeah, and I funny. wasn't a big Pritzker supporter but you know uh, right is right. You know, wait, time <laughs> out. Uh, yes, right is right. I, I sit corrected. Uh, he was sort of chortling at uh, Bogoyevich's antics. I can't remember, Troy, who did you support in the 2018? Kennedy. Chris Kennedy. Yep. Whose greatest contribution, of course, was the line that Mayor Rahm's planning policies were uh, forcing black people out of the city of Chicago. Irrefutable yep. line, that by the it. way. That was it. He just said it. You know. And you remember when I had my campaign, you know, my campaign was um, a big part of it was that Rob's message to uh, working people in Chicago is get the hell out. You know, that's his message. You shut down their schools and so they don't have a place to walk the kids to school, get the hell out. You shut down housing opportunities and you restrict vouchers, your message is get the hell out. You ticket them to the point where they can't afford to drive and you tow their cars. Uh, your message is get the hell out. And so to hear Kennedy say it, he didn't say get the hell out, but to just say it like that, you know, I wasn't a big supporter of anybody. You know, I, I was Kennedy Bish for a long time. Mm-hmm. And it was really pretty much that line that made me go, all right, I'm going to just get behind this guy. <laughs> I thought you were the reason he had the line. <laughs> um, I actually think, and I'm not sure, I think it might have been Amara. Amara, Amara was yeah, Amara yeah. was one of his advisors. Yeah, and I know Amara told me that when I asked, I was like, "Was that you?" And she sort of, you know, I don't know if she was telling the truth or not, but she sort of shook her head and was as if it was her that that advised him to do that. 2019 Chicago mayoral candidate Amara Inya? Yes, that Amara Inya. Oh. Yeah, thank you. Very good for knowing that. Uh, we have Troy LaRavier in the studio. Rob Markwick is with us as well. We're going to take a break. When we come back, I'm going to ask Troy what's really on his mind. Then we'll break down the show uh, in preparation for our bonus interview with uh, State Senator Rob Markwick. We'll be right back after this. Hey, everybody. What you're about to hear are the piano stylings of Jeff Manuel. Man, listen to Jeff go. Jeff Manuel has been playing piano around Chicago for years. He's played for conventions, for celebrities, played in basement bars with blues bands. He's played at prestigious social clubs, fine restaurants, and in the intimacy of private homes. Book Jeff Manuel at jeffemanuelpianist.com. Don't worry, I'll spell his name at the end of this commercial. You know what Chicago Magazine said? They said that Jeff Manuel is, quote, 
as comfortable with Chopin as he is with Cole Porter. He's excellent, and his performance is joyous. He offers an elegant stream of compositions and interpretations that entertains the mind but won't hurt the ears. To hear more of Jeff Manuel's work and to book Jeff for your next event, go to jeffmanuelpianist.com. I'm going to spell it out for you, people. J E F F M as in Mary, A N as in Nancy, U E L P I A N I S T.com. Take it away, Jeff Manuel. So this idea is a bunch of malarkey. Welcome back to the Ben Jarofsky Show, uh, yeah. live from the Chicago Sun-Times. Troy LaRavier is still in the studio, and we're going to ask him what's on his mind before we head out the door. Uh, Dennis, you have an update for me before we do that? I absolutely, I do. We're going to go to you in the live stream chat room uh, before we get out of here. We got Rob Martwick in for our bonus interview today. I'm leaving it up to you guys in the live stream chat. Do we keep open the live stream? Do we keep it going? Do we uh, throw jump back on YouTube and record our uh, interview with Rob Martwick? It's up to you, live stream chat room. If you've got nothing going on today, we'd love to do it. So weigh in, and uh, by the end of the show, I'll see what you guys say, and uh, we'll base our answer off of that. But let's read your comments today on the YouTube live stream chat. Everybody weighing in. I think all of you people are awesome. Like-minded Political people hanging out together on the Ben Jarofsky Show uh, YouTube live chat. All right. We got Dragon Slayer 19. I don't know about 18 and the others, but we got Dragon Slayer 19 here. All right. Dragon Slayer 19 says Warren, talking about Elizabeth Warren, Warren is being mostly annoying for attacking Bernie instead of hitting Biden on bankruptcy, etc. Especially since her political uh, political career is basically a reaction to how bad Biden's has been. You know what? Uh, Dragon Slayer is a pretty astute follower of politics, a Troy or a Rob. I don't know if you know this, but uh, what he's saying, or she, I don't know if Dragon Slayer is a man or a woman, but whatever, uh, is absolutely true. Elizabeth Warren's career uh, largely uh, developed to her from her opposition to the bankruptcy law, of, I think it was 2005. And Joe Biden was a big supporter of that bankruptcy law in many ways that protected the interest of credit card companies, that law, uh, and uh, left working people vulnerable. And Elizabeth Warren uh, really established her identity or political identity from leading the opposition. And Joe Biden, as an incumbent state senator at the time uh, from Delaware, was one of the leading Democratic voices. It was one of those things where Democrats are proving how they can work with Republicans uh, and that bipartisanship did not really work into the best interest of working people. So Dragon Slayer, very astute. Uh, analyst there. Our good friend Kyle weighed in on the YouTube live stream chat and says, eh, this whole handshake thing is gutter politics, like a goon in hockey. It's trash. Yeah, it uh, it really <laughs> irritated the hell out of me that it became such an issue. Uh, but I think I stand by what I said, even without any evidence uh, of it. My sense of it, it was that it was something concocted by some strategist in the Elizabeth Warren campaign who thought it would be a good idea to provoke a confrontation with Bernie to sort of exacerbate uh, the what they've detected, the weak support he had among women who are still uh, women voters who are still upset about the fight with uh, Hillary Clinton 2016. It sure smells like a strategist tact. What do you think? You think I'm on to something there, Troy? Yeah, I think you are. 
I, I also have think there might even be more um, nefarious um, motivations behind that, or just plain stupidity. Well, stupidity. I do think it was a stupid tactic. Yeah. It. it I think it hurt Elizabeth Warren. Not it, shaking his hand. Come on, you know. Uh, like I'm so mad. Like you're in politics. People say worse things all the time. Hell, read half the stuff they say about me, Troy, on the internet. You know. <laughs> like why? One. And she did it at a time where he was surging, just surging in the polls. And this is not going to stop stop it. You, you're basically taking the person who looks like he might be the nominee and trying to give him a handicap, um, trying to tamp down and stop some of the momentum that he has and is certainly going to need when he goes up against Trump. Like, you know, I hate to say this, because I've heard people say it in ways that I think are not genuine, but it, it seems like all this does is could potentially help Trump, because it's certainly not gonna help Elizabeth Warren. At the end of the day, I don't think it'll help anyone. I think it's BS and it'll blow over. But it's like, why? Why would you try and, why would you risk handicapping the person who look, looks as if he's going to be, one, who's closest to you in terms of political perspective, and then also looks like he'll carry much of your perspective into a head-to-head -head contest yeah. with Trump because no one else is going to carry it. Why would you do that? I don't get it. And Troy, it looks like uh, someone in our live stream chat is throwing you in the hot seat here. I'm going to ask you the question in just a moment here. But first, we got to award, we gotta award our, we gotta award our live chat champion for today. Oh. Our live chat champion is none other then our good friend Dragon Slayer 19 <laughs> with his comment on the Chicago Tribune and uh, the New York Times endorsement. Dragon Slayer 19 says, first time they need to decide, well, this is on the New York Times uh, endorsement more than anything. First time that they need to decide between two women, vastly different candidates, they can't decide? <laughs> F that. No, and he didn't was, say F. It was pretty pathetic. Come on, New York Times. Take a stand, all right? Dragon Slayer 19, <laughs> congratulations. You are today's live chat champion. You win nothing. That was good. Uh, what about the blue Mustang? No, uh, no. We're not giving those away anymore? All right, Troy, we're throwing you in the hot seat here, buddy. Uh, let's see. It's uh, Brianna, former live chat champion, by the way. Uh, Brianna weighed in with her question here. What grade does Troy LaRavier give Lori Lightfoot so far as Ooh. mayor? And, and, and Troy is a former uh, Chicago public school teacher and principal, assistant principal. He's got to come up with a grade. Right. So let me just go ahead and uh, play this again. <laughs> Jesus, man. I mean, I could do a cop out and say incomplete. <laughs> <laughs> well, that means like the New York Times. It's good enough but for But I'm them. not going to do that. So much of that grade is based on my experience as with the Chicago public schools and what's happening differently and what's not. Uh -huh. And we have a board that behaves differently, but that board seems to allow the people who actually run CPS to do the exact same crap they were doing under Rome. Um, <laughs> and so <laughs> with, and, uh, and also Lori has not lived up to some of the things she told me she was going to do, like get principals involved in decision-making. She's like, she hasn't even come close. She hasn't even started. Um, and so through that experience, my grade is F. Whoa. 
Dang, he's tough. Like, I'd hate to have him for a teacher. I mean, <laughs> it might be an F plus. Oh my God, there we oh, go. Never but mind. it's an F. Uh, through that experience, I mean, there's a lot of open government stuff that's happening mm-hmm. that looks nice, but when you see what's happening underneath and the people who are running stuff, the things are happening the exact same way, but she's putting a really nice, pleasant, soft face to it that that encompass many of the sort of things that we want to see as progressives, you know, um, in terms of open government stuff. But it's like, we're going to have an open government and we're still going to screw you over <laughs> through this open government. Um, so, yeah, F plus, D minus. That's total overall grade or just on the issue of treatment? That's on the issue of the issues that I'm closest with, which, which are the issues in Chicago public schools and education. Uh, there may be other areas where she's excelling, um, but I, I'm going to grade the one that I know best, and that one is, and particularly the strike, man, the way that went down uh, in terms of teachers having to fight for what she promised she would do mm-hmm. uh, in terms of increasing staffing and just how incredibly understaffed our school district is and that they had to fight so hard just to try and get something close to adequate staffing. Mm-hmm. Um, that was disappointing. Uh, well, Rob Markwick, you're in the hot seat. Uh, should we ask uh, Senator Markwick to give a grade as well, D? Rob Markwick. <laughs> what grade? I set the bar pretty low. <laughs> yeah, the bar is very, very low, although F+. plus. I don't know. So, you know, I, uh, as, as you might be aware, the mayor and I had a, <clears throat> a bit of a personal uh, interaction during the campaign, and uh, I've learned from that that she gets an A-plus no matter what she does with me. <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> Markwick learned his lesson. <laughs> no, um, you know, I... I, I it's hard to say. So I, I will talk from my experience, Troy, which was um, her ability to accomplish things down in Springfield. And um, I think that, again, in this shows, and this, is, this isn't really a knock on her. I mean, I guess it is because you, you, you suffer for it. But the explanation is, is that she hasn't done this before. Right? She, she's not done this before. This is new. And so she comes down to Springfield, a complicated place with a lot of 177 super A-type self-absorbed egomaniacs who all think that they're the smartest and most important person in the world. And, and you've got to get something accomplished there. And, and big stuff. Right. She needed to get this stuff done for the Chicago casino. She needed uh, breathing room on pensions. She needed uh, uh, the ability to change the transfer tax to get more revenue into the city of Chicago. She got none of it. And the, the, the feeling is, is that was that her staff w- wasn't engaging. No, no one was being called. Right. No, no one was being called and said, hey, can you give me your vote? And, and sometimes that's all it takes is just will you help me? And even that wasn't happening. So uh, I, I think uh, I'm not going <laughs> to I've been in trouble once before. So I'm going to say I'm going to go with Troy's uh, first part incomplete. Um, but I also want to point out that the things he talked about with the school district shows exactly why we need an elected school board. Mm. Right. Because it, it doesn't matter the intentions going in. The bottom line is this city is an enormous responsibility to run. And CPS by itself is an incredibly enormous opportunity. And when one person thinks they can do all those jobs, they fail at them. 
Uh, that is a, uh, is just a hint of some of the conversation we'll have with uh, Rob Markwick when we do the bonus, because I'm going to ask him about the elected school board. I'm going to ask him about how life is different in Springfield, or will be different in the state Senate with John Cullerton no longer in charge. Uh, all these issues. Will the state Senate uh, be a little more progressive? Uh, or will they go back to their old games of going right to the middle? These are kinds of uh, issues that we'll be talking about uh, with Rob Markwick. But before we do that, Troy, uh, you had some things on your mind that you wanted to get off your, uh, your out of your mind, out of your chest, so to speak, uh, having to do with the pay rate of principals. The floor yes. is yours. Um, after the teacher contract, uh, the ink on the contract was dry, like even before it was dry, I got a lot of calls from principals and assistant principals saying, okay, the teachers are getting 15% over five years. What are we getting? Um, I can't get an assist, I can't get my best teachers to become assistant principals because they don't want to take a pay cut. That is the situation we've gotten in in the last decade or so where teacher salary hikes which we believe they deserve. We're glad they got them because that gives us the ability to recruit good people into teaching positions. Uh, but the relative stagnation of the administrative pay scale means that good, good teachers don't want to take assistant principal jobs anymore because they literally have to take a pay cut. Um, we did, we, uh, did a Freedom of Information Act request with CPS uh, four months ago, they delayed it. We asked for the hourly rates of assistant principals and principals. How much per hour do they get paid? And along with teachers, so that we can compare because principals work an entire year and so do assistant principals. They don't get the summer off, they don't get a winter break off, they don't get spring break off. So the best way to determine the relative value that CPS places on their work is to look at their hourly rates. And so we asked for the hourly rates. They asked for a one-week extension. Uh, a week went by, no hourly rates. They asked for a 15-day extension. I said no. They took it anyway. No hourly rates. They asked for another 15-day and another 15-day. We had to send a letter letting them know we were going to sue them before they actually released. They released the uh, hourly rates on December 20th, the date our lawsuit was supposed to be filed. And... This is what the data showed, and you can see why they didn't want it out. The average experienced teacher in CPS, I remember, the career trajectory is experienced teacher, assistant principal, mm -hmm. principal. Okay. That's the career, so you would imagine the salary goes up. <laughs> These are the numbers. The average experienced teacher, and by experienced teacher, I mean a teacher with a master's degree and 10 or more years of teaching. There are 9,500 teachers in CPS who fit that. Almost half of the teaching force is an experienced teacher. 9,500 of them. The average experienced teacher, hourly rate is $70.32 an hour. $70.32. Average experienced teacher. Should that teacher be asked by her principal, you're exhibiting some great leadership qualities on your team, you know, assistant principal position is coming up. I'd like you to think about taking it. That teacher would have to go from $70.32 per hour to a starting assistant principal wage of $49.52 an hour. 
over a $20 per hour drop. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, they would have to work. They'd have to give up their summers, give up their winter breaks, give up their spring break, just so they could work enough hours to get back to the salary they had as a teacher. Mm-hmm. Now, this is important because one of the greatest impacts, besides the teacher, on student learning and achievement is school leadership. And we, if we can't get good people to become school leaders because the road to the principalship is through the assistant principal position. If we can't get our best teachers to take assistant principal positions, then we suffer in terms of the overall quality of school leadership that be, eventually is available to our young people. Uh, and so they go from $70 to $49. And then the starting principal salary is 60. You're still $10 short. When you become a principal, the starting salary is $60 per hour, right? And so you're still short by $10 of the hourly wage you made, wage you made uh, as a uh, teacher. Now, of course, principals work more hours, and so eventually their pay, most principals will make more in a year than their teachers do because they have to work through the summer. But to work through all of that, to have to go through that much just to barely beat out your teachers in salary, that's insane. That is not a compensation system that's going to attract and retain the best people for our teachers. I asked a teacher, I asked a principal about this, and here's a quote. I showed her the numbers, and I said, in her school, she supervises over 130 people who earn a higher hourly rate wage than she does, um, and so do her APs. And so I said, well, how does this make you feel? She said, it's discouraging, especially when you consider that most administrators work well over 40 hours a week. I average 70 to $80, excuse me, 70 to 80 hours a week. I know my APs work nearly as many. On top of the time demand placed on administrators to supervise extracurricular events as, as a large school, we also take on the extra workload of hosting evening and summer school regularly without any additional compensation. I also say I feel foolish at times. My APs and I often laugh at the fact that we could literally make more money as bartenders when we consider how much we get paid in relationship to the hours we actually work. Yeah. I all right. I I'm with you. So what do you think the CPS sh- should do? I think CPS and the mayor need to make the public aware of just how important the role of the principal, the assistant principal and teachers in general and education is so that the public will want to support investments in the system. Investments that will enable CPS to set not just teacher salaries, but administrator salaries at a level that will recruit and retain the best of them so that our children do not lose them. That's what I think they should do. I, I, I'm with you on everything you said, except the first thing you said. I wrote it down. I'm going to uh, take issue with you and get your response to this. Uh, I think you were uh, talking about a conversation you were having with a principal, and you said, I, uh, the person said, I want my best teachers to become assistant principals. How can I do that with this? I'm not certain I want my best teachers to become assistant principals. I think I want my best teachers to remain my best teachers. I'm thinking that uh, the qualities that translates into being an outstanding uh, teacher are not necessarily the qualities that translate into being an outstanding assistant principal. So I would like a salary sale that would reward teachers for being teachers and not tell a teacher, well, if you want to make more money, you have to leave 
the classroom where you're having your direct impact on students, your response. So there's two things there. Number one, when you understand the job of an assistant principal and the principal, part of that job is to teach teachers, right? You have to build up the whole teaching capacity of your school, and you're not going to do that if you're promoting mediocre teachers to assistant principal positions. You have to promote the best, you have to promote the brightest because one of their main responsibilities is to coach other teachers and create an environment in which they can all become just as good as they were. Because quiet is is kept and contrary to popular belief, Teaching is not something you're just born, like a talent you just have. <laughs> you learn how to do it, and you need the best teachers in assistant principal positions to help people develop those skills. And in relationship to your other comment, that's not an either-or thing. One of the things that we've, we've fought for for quite a while, but we don't get in this system, is some kind of extra lane for teachers so that Great teachers don't necessarily have to step out of the classroom, that they can share a lot of that knowledge with, uh, like t by taking a lead teacher position, for example, that gives them extra pay. So share a lot of that knowledge, uh, take positions that in which they can share a lot of that knowledge with their colleagues while they remain in the classroom. And maybe, you know, we take one class away from them or two classes away from them so they can have the time that they need to coach other teachers. Um, we would love for something like that to happen. So it's not an either or, it's it's a both and. All right, fair enough. Well, let me ask you this question. Uh, Rob, you wanted, you, you look like- No, I, I, you know, I'm just listening and I'm, I'm fascinated by it because Troy has such, you know, on the ground knowledge of what goes on there. But I find it fascinating as I hear you talk about this inverse situation where technically on an, on an hourly basis, you've got a step down in pay. It's the opposite of the, the charter school model. So the charter school model, your principals and your assistant principals, whoever is administering the school is getting paid huge dollars. And then they bring in these uh, these kids right out of college and they pay them nothing and they churn them and burn them and kick them out after a couple of years yeah. or burn them out after a couple of years. And so it's it's like a, the complete reverse of that model. That's you know? a good point. And uh, to that point, that's an excellent point uh, you make there. Uh, I would say this, uh, Troy, uh, part of the reason why the um, – public schools, uh, teachers uh, have the benefits they do uh, in relation to the uh, charter school teachers is they have a strong union and they I'm go so on strike. I'm so glad you said that. And and I'm so glad <laughs> he said Senator that. Martwick is here because one of the things that yeah. we want is to extend, because principals in Illinois don't have collective bargaining. Yes. Principals in New York have collective bargaining. Principals in California have collective bargaining. And in Maryland, they have collective bargaining in about 20 different states. So to be a state with a Democratic House, a Democratic Senate, and a Democrat in the governor's office that continues to deny collective bargaining to school administrators seems somewhat odd to me. So as a result, right now there is a bill, language for a bill, on a certain legislator's desk who's not in this room. <laughs> uh, and we're hoping to get support for it so that school administrators can also use the power of collective bargaining to advocate for themselves and the students and families that they serve. Because that way, when the next time the teachers are on strike, they're not out there alone. That they have this respected voice of school principals who feel more empowered to speak out and not be silent. 
And, and as you say that, I, I helped walk those picket lines, and I'll tell you what, at almost every school that I walked a picket line on, those principals were out there with their teachers, but there's nothing in it for them. Well, not only, okay, this is a change. Uh, now we're on a tangent. This is a change, and Troy knows where I'm going. When I first met Troy, all right, it was in 2014, I want to say, when he wrote that essay yep. for my beloved Bright One, I was like, he, there was this essay that just, told about how Mayor Rahm and the, the bureaucracy at the Board of Education uses principles as props in their propaganda mach- uh, campaigns. And that this was one principal, uh, Troy Larvier, who wasn't gonna allow himself to be used as a prop. Immediately called him up, we had coffee, and uh, the rest is history. Uh, so I welcome this collective bargaining bill. I'm gonna get the information when we're off air, I'm gonna write a story about it, bring people on. I welcome it. Because one of the things that's been traditional in Chicago public schools, and Troy knows I'm speaking the truth here, that principals have been used, have been used like little props in a public relation game by whatever mayor was running the show Mm -hmm. uh, to diminish whatever claims the teachers were making, to diminish whatever claims uh, parent, parent activists were making, to diminish whatever claims troublemakers like Mark Wick were making, principals were used. So the principal may go on the picket line and tell the teacher, I'm with you, but that's like a private thing. Publicly, those principals, if they say anything, they'll be like chirping whatever the boss says. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that, Troy LaRavier? I, I completely, I mean, that was the situation. And I think and it, it that was the situation, but I wouldn't say it was... Um, they had the few principles, they had a few principles they would bring out. Pat Basileri was one of them. Um, and if the, when my article got published, three principles came out and publicly risked their careers as well to say, Troy's right. And they went and dug up Pat Basileri to come out and say, well, I'm not afraid to speak and I think the district respects my position. They always have a few. And oftentimes those few, since they're the only ones who you typically see in the paper, people sort of get this sense that that's what principals are like because every time you see a representation of principal voice, it's someone who they've picked who's willing to echo and parrot what they've said. But that's a select group of people who typically stand against the prevailing opinion of 90% of the principals in the district. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Uh, Well, we'll see where this bill goes. Uh, I'm delighted by this collective. I'm for collective bargaining for everybody. Uh, I'm a big union guy. You support this show. So why not the principal? Why not the principals? I'll it's run not a bill. bill yet. It's a draft. Uh, I'll so run it's going to be a while. Oh, so he's got Mark Wick's already volunteered to run the bill. All right. <laughs> all right. It all happens on the Ben Jarofsky show. All right. We are going to close down uh, the, the regular portion of the show, uh, take a break, and then uh, bring back uh, State Senator Rob Markwick for a bonus interview. I want to thank Troy LaRavier, Maya Dukmasova, and, of course, Rachel Ventura was a surprise guest. Uh, she's running in the Democratic primary on the 11th Congressional District against incumbent Congressman Bill Foster. It's a really interesting race out there. Rachel Ventura is sort of the uh, uh, Bernie persuasion. Uh, She comes at it from the left, and Bill Foster is more of a mainstream moderate Democrat. So we'll see uh, how that goes down. Rachel Ventura, thanks for coming out. And of course, could not do this show today or any day without the man, the myth, the legend, the pride of joy in Alton, Illinois. And as State Senator Rob Markwick and Troy LaRavier could tell you, Back home and on, they call him White Lightning. Looking very good with a tie on today. Give yourself a raise, take it out of petty cash.
Hey, and remember, you can download previous Ben Jarofsky shows and Benny J bonus interviews at both Chicago Sun-Times and Chicago Reader websites and wherever else you download your favorite podcasts. Speaking of Benny J bonus interviews, we're going live with our interview with Senator Rob Martwick. Just give us about 20 minutes and we'll be right back on on the YouTube live stream chat. I got to cut today's show up for all the downloaders. You know what I mean? So check us out on YouTube. If not, you can download that interview. I think it'll be up on Sunday. Sunday. There we go. At Chicago Sun-Times and Chicago Reader websites, wherever else you download your favorite podcast, it'll also be available on YouTube after we end the interview. We'll see you Wednesday.